and welcome to the 97th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Lumo by AAA Games. Gareth, Hello. who are you and what do you do? Um, so my name's Gareth Noyce and I make computer games. Um, I've spent, I think, about 10, 11 years doing, you know, big box AAA console games, predominantly for Microsoft, uh, or at least on Microsoft's platforms. Um, and I left Ruffian Games, uh, 2013 and I've been working solo since then. Uh, Lumo's the, the first game to come out under my AAA label. And extraordinary game it is too. It is very pretty, but we're going to get on to that. <laughs> um, how did you make your start? Because you see, you already given this hint about where you, you, you spent the formative years of your career and continued on for some time. Can you give us a, a bit of a history of wh- where you came from? Um, oh, it's a real kind of random, windy road. Um, we like I, those. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, it took me a really long time to get into the games industry. Uh, it was like I'd always wanted to make games, and I, you know, like as a kid, with a couple of friends, we started making a shoot 'em up called uh, Neutrino for the Acorn Archimedes just after we left school. Um, there's a reference to that in Lumo at the start as well, actually, and. Um, I, you know, did the usual thing. I was applying to all the, the like, uh, game development studios that were around, you know, Team 17 and places like that. And I absolutely heard absolutely nothing back. Just whip, zero. And uh, that, that kind of carried on for years. I kept doing graphics or music and little demos and sending stuff off and just never heard anything back. And ended up going to university doing computer science and just figuring, well, I'm going to have to get a real job and learn to program and do all that stuff. And I kind of rode the dot-com bubble, the end of the dot-com bubble. So I was doing, you know, big free-tier web dev stuff, but always with like a multimedia bent to it. So I did a lot of dynamic HTML stuff, which is kind of like the precursor to HTML5. And some really, some quite nice big sites with... um, you know, dynamic front ends and stuff, because I always had an eye to sort of doing something that was sort of games related. Um, But it was the old email, um, uh, like, uh, weekly uh, message thing from uh, uh, Need to Know, and they advertised this retro event called uh, Retrovision in Oxford. And I just sent it to a couple of friends and was just like, we we should go along to that, it sounds pretty cool. And it was the first retro event that I'd heard of, and obviously there's loads now, like Play Expo and things like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I attend a lot of them myself to this day. Yeah. So I, I have a lot of old, I mean, I have two Amigas, one of, both of them work, one of them's just a pure 1200, like, just left, it's fine. The other yeah. one's been so freaking modified and butchered, it barely resembles. And I, yeah. <laughs> I, I've got the same. My, my 1200s under my desk, 060, and all the all the gubbins hooked up. Yeah, it's you can play Quake like no Chris. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, s- still, still do that. Um, <laughs> Sorry, you interrupted. You so we, no, we so we rolled up at Oxford, and um, at the guest of honour was Jeff Minter, and um, I I just I was like to go to my friends, just shit, that's Jeff Minter. Um, so I walked up to him and he goes, Are "You Jeff Minter?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And I was like, "Oh mate, can I buy you a pint?" So. Ended up buying him a, a Guinness and, and chatting to him and, uh, you know, hanging out, thinking this is all pretty cool. And um, 
just stayed in touch with him, joined the Llamasoft forum, which has been going for, you know, 15, 16 years. And it's obviously, it's full of other game developers, which I didn't really know at the time, because everyone's kind of under a handle. But we started doing these Llamasoft meetups and more of these retro events, and... Uh, I ended up meeting just loads of devs and I was kind of like banging on the door going, I really want to make games, I really want to make games, I really want to make games. And I had an interview at Mucky Foot uh, just before they folded and completely messed it up. I was so, like, you know, hyped that I was in a game dev studio. Like, the blood just was went to my head. I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And um, so I was a bit disappointed to mess that up. But I ended up getting a testing job at Climax, uh, Climax Silent in Portsmouth. And that was great because, uh, you know, big studio, they had a bunch of projects going on. And I just kind of worked my way through from there. And, Didn't uh, they do MotoGP? Yeah, yeah, the Brighton studio. They did, yeah, um, yeah. They had a load, I mean, they did everything. For a while when I was there, I think they were the biggest developer in the UK. Yeah. And like anyone my age that's, that's spent any time in the industry, everyone's passed through Climax. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's, everyone's got the tattoo. And, you know, they're, they're a sort of bungee, naughty dog, rock steady. You know, there's ex-Climaxians everywhere now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, stayed in touch with Jeff. Uh, all the way through that, and uh, and all the other devs on the Llamasoft forum um, was fairly heavily involved with Jeff getting the Neon Visualizer onto 360, and we kind of got closer and closer to uh, Microsoft through all of that process. So, Gazlidden uh, XAP64 uh, guy left Climax, and I worked with him, and we had a contracting consultancy called Zen Services, and we were basically like parachuting into game dev studios, sorting out their schedules, adding programmers or artists, and basically helping people ship their games. And we did that for, I don't know, think three or four years, and eventually that group founded Ruffian Games in Dundee. And I was there, I think, for another five years. Um, again, predominantly working on Microsoft stuff, although we did quite a few kind of unannounced projects, and we did some stuff for Crytek, and we were working quite closely with Sega for Streets of Rage for a while. Um, so that there was a, you know, it was quite a good time of of doing stuff. Um, but I met my girlfriend, and uh, obviously she's Finnish, and it f- kind of felt like a good time to just do something different, really. Um, I, I kind of I've been doing the production stuff for about five or six years, and it's all right. It, it you know it's kind of cool running the teams and stuff, but it's not exactly like a creative role, and it, it's you know it's not meant to be. You're, you've got a different job, um, and I wanted to just you know try something else. I originally came to Finland to set up a studio, a satellite studio for Ruffian. Um, we began to look at doing like mobile or handheld stuff just like smaller projects and I'd kind of managed the studio and, um, but it was just the wrong time really uh, we lost some projects there was a few money worries and bits and bobs were happening in the background so I ended up just going well you know it's not fair me being over here whilst you know the UK is flapping about you know trying to ship projects and do other stuff so um, I left and was looking for something you know to do with basically the, the small amount of cash that I had left when I when I came over, and my girlfriend said, well, "You might as well just invest it and, and do, you know, your own project. Um, you know, if you if you haven't got enough to start up the studio, then just use the savings and stuff to try and make something." So, I was actually just talking to Steve Pickford on Twitter, and we were looking at Equinox speed runs, and um, 
that's kind of the shove to, to start Lumo and the last two years I've just been working on Lumo and, and working on my own. So it's uh, it's been a, a kind of wild and interesting ride, but it's um, it's a good feeling to be, you know, first game out now. You've been through lots of like, phase shifts through the industry and the, seeing how the barriers of entry have fallen quite a lot recently. What's your feelings on that, the fact that people can now use middleware to the point of, you know, hard coding isn't so much required as much as it used to be. What's your feelings on that? Um, It's interesting because it's, I kind of have a different view from a lot of people, mainly because it took me 10 years to get in. So I I can understand, you know, the attraction of the games industry and the fact that it's difficult to get into some of the established studios and, um, the change in the technology, you know, it, we've almost gone right back full circle to the mid-80s now, which is kind of cool. But the, the games industry is highly cyclical. You have to understand that. If you watch it for any period of time, you see the same cycles again and again. And the cycles get faster and shorter. So although we have, you know, this great democratization of technology now, Unreal and Unity have gone, you know, and Game Maker and, you know, all of the other kind of tools, the, the biggest change for me is not the tech because there's always been a way to to kind of get around that it's more the fact that you can just publish so i remember 2000 2006 we were like what working on crackdown then and that was you know castle crashes just came out on xbox live arcade there was a lot of what would have been you know considered seriously like just solo indie guys starting to put stuff up on the web selling direct and they started to have this channel where they could get onto steam where they could get onto the, the the kind of console platforms and that was the big change that that's where you know I I, I struggled to call myself indie because those guys you know they did all the hard work they they're the ones who kind of fought to 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 get you know smaller titles onto these platforms um, and that stuff I think is great you know it would be practically impossible for me to have released Lumo and got it onto console in 2007. You know, even though I knew loads of people working at Microsoft, it would have been a complete uphill battle to do that. Whereas now, it's basically, you know, it, it's a given. You can yeah, it's like, well, why wouldn't you? So yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's a few hurdles you have to get across. I mean, I, I teach at Tamak University in Tampa in Finland. Right. So I see like 20, 30 students every year. Um, and it's, it's a real plus and it's a real minus because I really like doing it because I want to help these guys get into the industry because I know how hard it is but at the same time the the average kind of skill level of a lot of students who are going through you know nearly everyone can make a game Um, that's almost you know I can probably sit you down for like a day and we can knock a game out Um, and you know we could probably publish that game Um, and that's okay but that's not going to be enough to sustain a career in the industry you know it's um, there's this expectation from a lot of the, particularly the younger students, that it's like, right, well, we're going to make this game, we'll make it free to play, we'll put it on iOS and we'll profit. And it's like, well, you know, you might, you probably won't, you know, or we'll make this game and we'll put it on Steam and we'll make millions. And it's like, well, no, you probably won't, you'll probably no. sell a hundred copies. Yeah. And the, it's, it's, there's so many people going through this system right now. You know, the UK, everywhere. All of these universities offer these courses, but there's not that many jobs in the industry. Yeah, you know, the the studios, the established studios, are not going to take 250 people 
out of you know the university system because they just don't have that many vacancies so you know you end up with a lot of people um you know trying to make games but not you know being able to sort of sell them or, or sustain themselves for it or not get a job and that's the kind of difficulty from it and i would be much happier if people's expectation you know was centered around that it's still not easy you know, even though you can make a game, you're not going to get discovered and you're not going to get seen and you need some kind of marketing and you need to, you know, create some kind of, um, you know, momentum to, you know, make a success out of the product. Because at the end of the day, it's, um, you know, it's a business. You know, you have to pay your rent. You have to pay your food. It's it this kind of limit to, to, to what you can do. So even though Unity and Unreal will, will, will you know, take you 90% of the way, you know, you still have to get rid of all the bugs. You still have to make sure the networking's good. You still have to do this. You still have to do that. You still have to localize it. You, you know, it, it's it's not a done deal. Um, but stepping back from that, you know, I want more games. Uh, I'm over the moon that you know anyone can do this. That's fantastic because I'm not. I don't find myself playing a lot. Of, you know, big box AAA games anymore. It's not the stuff that interests me. Stuff like you know Downwell or you know DRM or Don't Die Mr. Robot or any of those kind of things. Yeah, cool. I, I'm quite happy to have three or four of those types of games on the go at once, and that's fantastic. You know, there, there's never going to be too many games. It's because I'm never going to play them all anyway. But if there's more games that suit my taste, fantastic. That's a good thing. It's just, you know, it, it's kind of, it worries me a little bit to, you know, mainly see the kind of reactions from the students, you know, because not all of them get jobs. Not all of them are able to finish the game. Not all of them, you know, th there's not this expectation to have the technical knowledge that you used to have. So they kind of struggle to do anything else outside of these engines. And it's, it's, it's that, you know, part of it being fashionable, part of it just, you know, a little bit of naivety and the games industry is brutal it's always been brutal you know there's no guarantees of success it's um well unless you're activision and you've got billions of dollars but even then um or you know, it, yeah yeah but then you know even blizzard can games don't they they're they're mmo they went, you know so yeah, you know turn even, into a like squad shooter which is good yeah. but you know <laughs> but that's an expensive mistake for those guys to make and some of that is maybe hubris at so much success and some of it's you know you know market forces things change really rapidly um you know and yeah i understand the argument that it's more difficult to make money now on steam and yeah it is because there's more games on steam but yeah. that's you know it's no different for musicians it's no different for authors it's no different for filmmakers you know we live in a in a world right now where our media consumption is you know basically we can get anything we want for free or subscription yeah. There's no limit to how much content we can have. Yeah. It's all on demand any time we want it, and games are a part of that. Yeah. And a lot of people, we're all, you know, fighting over it, but the flip side from that is the audience is bigger. There are more people playing games, and if you do, you know, hit a vein, you, you'll, you know, you'll probably do all right. But, yeah, it's, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not even sure it's, you know, any different indie indie titles are basically filling that mid tier that used to be on console. You know, they've all disappeared. There's hardly any AAA games now, really, because there's not enough studios that actually know how to make them, and the yeah. price is through the roof. And there's uh, more. There's more time. I mean, let's cite Doom for example. Okay, let's talk about if that, look at that. <laughs> they, they they started it and they went, yeah, let's do it again. <laughs> 
Okay, we'll release this. It took them like, I don't know, seven, eight years? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure that's... I mean, yeah, that's... Less, I, I have no idea what's happening internally at ID, but I, I can imagine, you know, when John Carmack's leaving, then, yeah. you know, a lot of things are going to change really quickly. Um, you know, Bethesda want to make some money as well at the end of the day. Um, yeah, I, I've probably worked on more games that have been canned than I've worked on games that have been released at this point. Um, so there's a lot of it that happens, but I don't know, making that sustainable business, particularly if you're not doing work for hire, if you're doing like original IP, it, it's always been, you know, tricky. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I'm kind of fortunate right now. It's like my, you know, I, I'm not trying to be a millionaire or drive. I mean, I don't even own a car right now. If, as long as I can pay my rent and I, you know, got a little bit of splash money, I'm quite happy. And that allows me to, you know, make games like Lumo. Yeah. That in some senses for me feels better than, you know, going back to having a studio of 20 or 30 people because I don't have to find, you know, food for them every month and, and you know, keep them working and keep their salaries paid. I, I just need enough in the bank to, to kind of, you know, keep rolling for another year. Um, well, hopefully so we can help you with that <laughs> by having you on the show. Um, but let's move on to your influences as a creator. So what, what do you what do you think you, you you lean to? I've got a pretty good idea how you can answer this question, but I just want to know what do you think as a creator you've uh, been you know, inspired by? What just for Lumo or in general? I don't know. It's your call. You can do both. Well, um, I think generally it's I, I'm a child of the eighties. Right. You know, I grew up in the arcades. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, grew up with the, the Spectrum and the sixty four, and, and went through all the console growth. So my knowledge of games is, is fairly large. It goes back quite a long way. My collection's fairly large. You know, I've, I've got a few thousand games. So I've played quite a lot of stuff and I have almost old-fashioned kind of views about certain game design stuff. You know, I don't like lots of narrative. I don't like story before gameplay. I don't really like big, long tutorials. You know, I'd much rather have stuff like the older games did and it was kind of in situ and you work stuff out as you go along. Um, that's not you know the modern expectation for a lot of gamers and that certainly caused a few people to struggle with Lumo um, not but me but then again I'm old so <laughs> yeah it's yeah. Uh, we go back to that later it's yeah, kind we will, of yeah. some of the things it's um, I don't know it's, it's you know Nintendo are a massive touch point you know I right. really admire the quality of their games and how they produced them and engineered them you know and I, but I don't think you'd find any game developer who'd say anything different um, I love a lot of the old school Japanese games you know Capcom the Tatos even Sega's stuff you know those old console games they're probably the most formative gameplay memories because they looked amazing they sounded amazing they were joyful they were skill based they were pick up and play you know I really like that stuff the first time I encountered that personally was I had a friend who had an MSX I didn't have one. And, and he had all these cartridges, these Konami cartridges lying around. He said, the, mm. uh, try that one. And we plugged the uh, Nemesis or Gradius, what we call it. Oh, yeah, God. Yeah. It was just like, hang on. This is really, this is a like, regular like, lefty-righty shooter, fine. But there's power-ups and bullet dodging, bullet dodging. You know, it was just, I'd never seen it before. And it was, you're right. It is really approachable. Bloody yeah. hard, though. It's yeah, those games were, but you know, uh, all the games were. Some of them unfairly so, but mm. you know, it's something like Robotron. It's insanely difficult, but oh. it's entirely playable. 
Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, I, I can't do it now. I've not played for a while, but I was beating a million fairly regularly. Um, it just takes practice to kind of get there. But you, you end up with this massive innate understanding of the mechanics and what the designer was doing. And there's quite a few games where I've ended up that, you know, Super Mario 3, I understand, you know, the, the mechanics and how to exploit them very, very intimately. And even Mario World to a lesser degree. Um, and it's awesome to get that kind of mastery of those games. But I can't say I do that for a lot of modern games because, a, I haven't got the time, and, and B, they don't feel the same. You know, they're, they're, they've not quite got that immediacy from the, the old school games. Um, but the Amiga really um, probably shaped a lot of me as well. You know, the demo scene was a massive influence when I was a teenager. Um, having an Amiga, having D-Paint, you know, that... There's, a, there's this whole kind of aura and ethos around, like, the Amiga and the Amiga scene that's, you know still kind of with me as well big fan of you know bitmap brothers sensible software you know the 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 big players from that era um there's a lot of stuff about their games that i still you know kind of admire and i really like the way they're constructed and the and the way they tell stories to the player as well so it's it's hard to kind of pick out you know two or three but i you know i think the teenage years the amiga in the arcades really uh you know uh, they're always in the back of my head when i'm making stuff Right. Cool. That's a great uh, to hear about the Amiga. Have you seen the Bedroom to Billions Amiga Years film yet? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 What yeah, did you think? That. What did you think? I think that was a missed opportunity in a sense. Um, mm. I really enjoyed, uh, you know, listening to the creators and particularly the early 500 stuff. But that's kind of a story that's been told. It's yeah. I, I was really interested... I mean, listening to Dave Needle and stuff, it's fantastic to get him on record now that he's passed. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know what happened after that? You know what was the you know the AGA chipset, the the, the next gen chipset that they were working yeah, on? Yeah, I know, noticed they, that they didn't they didn't the CD32 did this, didn't even mention it, and that it was a bit odd. Uh, yeah, it's it's like they kind of did half of it. Yeah, you know, and they had Dave Haney there, and it's like that guy could talk all day about what was going on at Commodore, and that for me was kind of more interesting. I mean, I know all about the demo scene. It's nice to see it featured and explained and everything. Um, but it was almost like, you know, they had this opportunity to really chronicle the Amiga itself rather yeah. than what was kind of flat. And I think they did half of it. Mm. And then they, they kind of, it, it almost felt like it was some of the extras from Bedrooms to Billions sort of tacked on the side of it as well. Yeah. So it was good. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed it. But I would have loved for them to really have dug into, you know, why was the 3000 doing what it was doing? What about the video toaster? What about the A4000? They, they, they did touch on that. And yeah, they, it's mentioned, but, but you know. it wasn't not, not enough depth. You're right. I mean, also like the comparison between the ST and the Amiga side and ST initially. I know, sorry. And then I eventually saw the light and I got a, a, a 500. Um, <laughs> but I still have my ST, I have to say. Um, you know, because I, you know, Dungeon Master and all that. Yay. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, um, interesting time. It looks like you and I both lived through it. This is, uh, yeah, it's very formative for me because I think I started programming on the 8 bits badly, like basic yeah. stuff. I didn't really touch assembly language, but then the Amiga was like this. Exp- I had D Paint, I had Pro Tracker, I had Dev Pack, and it was like, you know, all of a sudden I can make things move on the screen. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, and it just, it, I don't know, it, it was such a cool machine. You know, the OS was great, the, the, the game, everything about it. Those, those four or five years was just a really good point in my life as well the, ni- the early 90s good music explosion you know 
good games, good demo scene stuff. It was all kind of happening around then, and that stuck with me for years, to be honest. Like, like I say, my, my Amiga's still under my desk. <laughs> yeah, and the, we've explained that we look after them. Like, it's still working. What yeah. about caps? No, they're fine, I think. I do actually <laughs> need to get mine recapped. I yeah. I, I should just bite a bullet and get that yeah, done. get it um, done. Yeah. But, uh, now, next question then is who, in most of mine in the industry, what developer do you point at and go, they should carry on doing what they're doing, please? Oh, man, that's a difficult one because... Yeah. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's just you end up... You, you meet so many cool people. And the, about it. the thing... The industry's really small. Like, you end up bumping into a lot of the same people again and again. And I met so many... Like, you wouldn't even know their names. But, like, just, yeah. you know, awesome coders or awesome artists or, yeah. you know... It, though, and they're friends as well. You know, really good guys who I kind of miss working with. Um, the only thing I, I'm kind of... A, Against is kind of like the the eighties or nineties personality who who stand in front of a team of fifty people and take all the credit. Yeah. That, that stuff just gets on my tits no. really, really badly. We probably mentioned some names, but that's not what I'm asking. You. <laughs> there's a um, name that's popped into my head right now. We could talk about it after the show, but and it's yeah, two or three I can think yeah. of. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's yeah. obviously I'm, I'm a I'm a massive fan of Jeff Minter, and I love that he's you know this esoteric game development personality and, and it has so much of him in his games you know that needs to continue yeah. um, but I don't know there's, there's it's all the, the it can be the, a company I mean that's quite common that a lot of the interviewees say can I say a company I said yeah that's absolutely fine you know just uh, again, I'm, I'm struggling to pick one out because people <laughs> kind of move from place to place quite often oh, right, okay. I identify as like people work on a project they're really attracted to and then will, will tend to move and, and go somewhere else it's uh, there's quite a lot of fluidity into it especially um, now especially now yeah. yeah yeah very much so um i don't know it's hard to pick one one person out really i mean i i, I miss companies it's a shame lionhead got closed you know it's oh. a shame we lost a, a real you know they were, they were great because they made British games. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I and went to a talk a... at Resd about the fall of Bullfrog and Lionhead, yeah. and they had a whole panel full of people. Um, none of them were called Peter. Um, no. descri- <laughs> describing what happened there and, and, and the, the, the technology and the, the things they did. and the, They talked a lot about Magic Carpet, which is a game not many people talk about enough, in my humble opinion. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I know it wasn't an Amiga game, because no Amiga, standard Amiga, could even attempt to throw around what it was doing. But it's still a corker of a game. And it wasn't a PlayStation as well, so... Yeah. Yeah, anyway, but... uh, Yeah, I I, I think that's a shame. I mean, it's... We have a lot of really big studios in the UK, and they work on, like, all the biggest franchises out there. But, you know, they're all Americanized because that's the biggest part of the market. And it's totally understandable... I do kind of get that, but to, you know, we, in the 80s and to a degree in the 90s as well, we, we had real kind of, our, our our games had a real sort of personality to them, and we kind of slowly lose that. There's bits of it in Grand Theft Auto, because, you know, it's that sarcastic satire. Um, but we don't have a lot of, like, the, the proper, you know, kind of, you know, British games, because you know we're 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 working for you know foreign companies a lot of the time, yeah. and that is that is what I miss. You know, so Lost Lionhead is a blow. 
rare not doing enough is a blow. That's terrible. Um, what happened? You know, there, but, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, again, a lot of the, a lot of the original guys are probably no longer there. So whoever's <laughs> there right, now, whoever's there now, has to you know create that personality themselves. I just wish they would get more games out because even if you look at the Connect stuff, there's loads of personality in that. Yeah, you know the, the, the characters and the, and the look and the feel of it. I mean, they did really good work. Mm. It's it's just you know I'd love to see them off the leash and just I'm looking forward to what they're doing next. I, I'm he- quietly hearing good things, but um, now I, I want all the the British devs to carry on making British games, really, right. but like with with proper British personality. That's that's the thing. I think that's emerging a little bit. Um, certainly, you're helping with that um, because your game is terribly British. Yeah, yeah but the only thing mine's missing is a tea bag. Yes, <laughs> but everything else is uh, is extremely British for various reasons. So Lumo reeks of Britishness um, without being sarcastic, which is amazing because um, we build our entire sense of humour around sarcasm. There, there, there is a fair <laughs> amount of sarcasm in there. It's, 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 it's mainly stuff that makes me laugh. I've got to be honest. Yeah, there's something I'll ask you about later on. But anyway, let's final question in the first half, and then we move on. To the second half, we do delve deep into Lumo. What are you playing right now? Oh, so it's a mix. So I've got the pile of shame. Um, Me too. When I'm when I'm deep deep into dev, I find it really difficult to actually play anything. So yep. for literally the last year, you know, I do my time working on Lumo, and then I have to get away from the computer. So I've just been reading books and watching films. Um, but the day after it went out I saw that I didn't have to do a patch so I'm working through I'm halfway through Twilight Princess HD right now um, I just completed Shovel Knight properly rinsed it um, I've got Ratchet and Clank there's oh that's uh, glorious France. isn't it uh, I've not like, loaded it up yet. It's, oh, you just literally. got it. All right. oh, yeah, you, I'm talking. You're in for a treat. You're in for I'm a treat. talking the pile of shame. Oh, uh, <laughs> project cars. The steering wheel's now in my room. That's getting plugged in this week as well. So I'm going to go through that. Uh, Transformers. Um, what else was there? Splatoon. I've still not played that. That's on the pile. I'm going to go through that. Um, Elite. I have been playing um, a lot, and the Engineers expansion has just come out, so I'm going to give that a run over the weekend as well. How are you finding Horizons and landing on planets? You enjoyed it? I loved it. Yeah, loved it. I mean, yeah. I got mad respect for Frontier. Um, yeah. What a brave they, move. What a brave move. Well, they, they got the money, you know, they had some investment, they've done a Kickstarter, so they, they were okay. The, the thing I'm really impressed about is they executed, and from a production point of view, that was a really difficult thing to do, but they, they hit pretty much every milestone they set themselves. They got it out there. It was, you know, good quality day one, not really massive server-wise, and they've just expanded and expanded and expanded it, and I absolutely salute everyone who's working at Frontier right now. They nailed that, absolutely nailed it. And it it was everything I ever wanted from Elite. It was just it's, give me the give me the Cobra Mark II, point me in a direction of space, and let me go. I'm done. I, I love the hyperspace thing where you have to point your ship more or less where you're going to go. I know it's yeah. a weird thing, but like, uh, what, could this have hyperspace? Yeah, but you got to point. Oh, jeez, here we go. <laughs> and then it, the sense of speed is amazing in that game. I don't the know audio how, design, yeah. it's, I'd, I'd love to buy their audio designer a pint. I mean, <laughs> everything top to bottom just completely nailed. I, I must have spent the first three months just doddling about yeah. exploring, you know, just... And it's like, uh, I'm basically hyperspacing every other minute, scanning hyperspace, and I'm like, I'm doing nothing yeah. for like six hours at a time. <laughs> it's, it's just totally... And, and reviewers, I got frustrated with my fellow reviewers, like, what are you doing? Yes, there's no content, really, but that's not the point. 
And oh it's, yeah, I mean yeah. it's yeah, it's hard to care. Um, so yeah. that's, that's my big favourite. It's I've just done all of the StarCraft two expansions. I finished those a month ago. Uh, I was about halfway through Metal Gear Solid Five when I stopped because I had to do Alpha for Lumo. So th- there's a big there's a big pile of things going on at the minute. Um, my girlfriend's just shipped Shadwin as when as well, so I need to go and play through that. Um, so yeah, I've got five or six things on the go. I think at the minute. That's really good to hear. You know, um, I'd love asking that question of developers because uh, the best ones are the ones making and playing the games as well. They love playing them too. I know it sounds weird. Maybe you don't think that's weird. No, no, no. I've seen it. I mean, I've worked with guys who work in the industry and don't play games, and it's the weirdest thing to me. It's like yeah. you're, you're doing the right job. Um, but no, yeah. it's <laughs> like I say. The problem I have, it's I, there was a point, you know. Last year, I was probably doing you know ten, twelve hours a day on on Lumo, and it's just, I don't want to sit at a computer anymore. No, I I'd, I'd dive into a book at that point if I were you. Yeah, you did. Um, yeah. So, but that means there can be like you know maybe a year where I'm really not playing anything. So what I tend to do is I'll just you know I stick them on the pile and then I'll sit down for a month and I'll just go through. I mean, at the end of Crackdown Two, I think I had two Mass Effects, I had Dragon Age Origins, I had you know. Literally, there's about nine games, and I just sat through and went through every single one, one after the other. I did enjoy Mass Effect. I did. I did. I know, but I did. I, I like the second one. The third one, second though, one. Yeah. is like between that and the second Dragon Age, Bioware have lost me. I'm sorry, I'm not. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Not buying anymore. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, 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 I, I, it's that, that fits and start is what's annoying. Actually, I'd, I'd rather just sort of have more of a, a play games kind of casually all the time but yeah it can't can't be helped um yeah. one suffer for one's art right <laughs> <laughs> if that's if, yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's move on to the second half where we do talk about luma So Gareth, tell us, is Lumo? Lumo, I should have this polished by now, I must have yeah. said it a hundred yeah. times. Lumo is a contemporary take on the old school arcade adventures, and particularly the isometric arcade adventures, which Spec Chums and C64 nerds will you know, recognise as the old filmation games from Ultimate Player Games, Night Law, Alienate, um, more... Popular is probably Head Over Heels and Monster Max from John Ripman and Bernie Drummond. But we can't forget like the Pickford brothers, like Max Headroom, Amaru, uh, Equinox. You know, they're, they're probably the kings of the, the isometric. Amaru was... Oh, I love that. Even though I barely understood what I was doing at the time, I do now because I've played it since. I don't yeah. know if you found that. The games you played when you were really young, and then you can play them now, like, oh... That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, what was that? One man and his dog. I didn't have a clue what I was doing in that no. when it first came out. Was no. it one man and his dog? It was something it's, like that. Yeah, it was uh, one man and his droid. 
That's the one. Yeah, one man and his droid. No yeah. idea what I was no doing. Idea was doing. Old on that. And I played it on a green screen CPC as well, so I couldn't even see what I was doing. <laughs> and then I, I played it under emulation ages ago, and I was like, actually, this is quite a good game. <laughs> this is quite clever. I had it on yeah. the Spectrum, but I did defect to the Amstrad. I know. Yay. Yoga. I got the Amstrad first, and then like had a, a Spectrum on the side, so I could... <laughs> Basically get both. But my mum wouldn't let me plug, plug the Spectrum into the TV because she thought it would blow the TV up. Oh, so we had like this running argument for about 10 years, which <laughs> I, still haven't, I still haven't let her forget. When she plugs her Apple TV in, I'm like, you're going to blow up the TV. Blow up the TV, love. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. So it's basically, uh, going back to Lumo. Yeah, so... Yeah, yeah so it's a modern take on those games. It is not a remake of those games no, no, it's um, not. in any way. Although there might be a few things that are kind of recognisable. I've purposefully not gone back and played the originals. It, it's really what I remember them as being. And it's trying to evoke that same kind of feeling of exploration and, you know, just kept constantly going forward to see what's next. Um, they're structurally, it's a little bit different from the older games as well. It's, it's, um, it's a much kind of bigger game than those 8-bit games you you know, kind of obviously hope. Um, and it does a few things that the others didn't do. There's a, a quite a few sort of mini-games that are hidden in there, which are kind of like my, you know, all your isometrics have belonged to me phase, where I was just trying to basically touch on as many of the isometric games as I could from a gameplay point of view and, and kind of put it in there. So it's it's really it's kind of a, like a love letter to the, the, the British gaming scene of the 80s and the early 90s um, I've tried to you know doff the cap at as many of the original um, isometric game creators as possible you know try and reference some of the stuff that was in there but also the magazine industry I'm a, a your Sinclair fanboy and, oh uh, that magazine that spawned our current output of British journalism the sarcasm the wit the constant jibes yeah it's fantastic <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm a spectrum every sense of the way yeah um, and I've, I've you know tried to pay homage to that as much as possible so it's it's it, it's very much sticking to the template of the original games it's and very purposefully so i've seen a few uh, critics are kind of complaining about this but it's you know it's still room based the rooms kind of reset there's limited uh, sort of persistence between rooms there's, you know, a heavy emphasis on exploration. There are some puzzles. There's still quite a lot of jumping and, and moving about. And there's just, you know, a few concessions to the modern gamer uh, through, like, the game modes and the save game and stuff like that. But it's it's very much trying to be in the spirit of something like Head Over Heels or Monster Max or, or Equinox. I'm going to ask you, you hinted at this earlier, and it's common for developers to project what question I'm going to ask, either they're ultra-intelligent or my questions are rubbish, I don't know. <laughs> um, but as you, I think it's the mixture of both. But um, you said your inspiration for of Lumo is drawn from those isometric games of old. What do you believe aspects of those games remained in Lumo after 30-odd years? What, what do you think? That's worked then, and Christ, it works now. And you've left it in Lumo. What, what things do you think you've left in there? Can you get a little bit more detail? Uh, well, if you look at the mechanics that are in Head Over Heels, everything. Uh, with the <laughs> exception of there being two characters. Two characters, yeah. Um, I don't think I've missed out anything, really. There's the pick up and place blocks. There's, you know, push blocks. There's springs. Uh, I think all of the, the central mechanics, the exploration, the heavy emphasis on exploration is still in there. Uh, the room you know, 
based puzzle thing is still in there. You know, each room's kind of like a semi-contained uh, thing. You either have to work out physically through skill to get from end to end in the time, or you know, it's a more traditional what you would call puzzle puzzle, where you have to do something. Um, I, I think that the template is exact, and I've, I've kind of I don't think I've missed anything out of at least head over heels in that sense. All I've done is kind of add more to it. I've I've looked at it more as okay. There's head over heels. There's Monster Max. I'm going to simplify some of that stuff because you know it was just too brutal or too hard. And then I'm going to go from that template, and I'm just basically going to extend it. Like, what new things can we do now that you couldn't do then that would still fit with that kind of type of game? Now, the obvious thing, you know, I could have just had it so it wasn't isometric and you could spin the rooms around, but I've not done that. I've purposefully I'm making an isometric game of this type and I've stuck to it what I have done is I've messed around with light and shadow or I've messed around with physics um, or I've you know got more interactable things like the ropes or the balls um, and I've made the rooms bigger some of them might scroll some of them you know might just go up and down or be you know eight times the size of what you could have had on the spectrum um, and all of it is really just looking at it as, as like a gameplay extension just you know taking you know those magnificent games from the 80s and just pretending that we carried on making them you know what other stuff would we be doing and uh my kind of view on that was you know to soften a lot of the edges you know you've got infinite lives in adventure mode um you know you've got immediate respawn you've got save everywhere um so a lot of that pain from you know the original games is gone you can take it at your own pace you can come back put it down come back you know there's none of that having to get to the end in one sitting um having different zones and, and you know head over heels was a good one for this it had very distinct zones but they basically kind of reused the same game mechanics throughout what i've done is i've tried to have a different set of mechanics in every zone so it feels like you're kind of exploring this physical space but the rules slightly change in each bit of it um, and then also just going wild with like the warp zone. Just okay, we're just going to ignore all the rules now. The rooms will sort of form around you as you walk, or you know you'll be floating around on things that look more like a Mario red coin level than you know a, an isometric game. And I've just tried to pack as many ideas in as possible, but all the time trying to be true to the template of the originals. You know, I'm not. I'm not making a Zelda dungeon. I'm making no. an isometric arcade adventure. So I have to limit myself quite strongly because you've no idea how easy it is just to make a Zelda dungeon. From yeah, there's stuff. so many now. Not that I've got a complaint against that. I mean, some of my favourite games are have Zelda mechanics in them, and that's fine. Um, but uh, it's, it was really... When I saw Lumo, and like I said, a, a Euro game, I actually did a full stop and like, no, someone's made, someone made Night Law again. Why? <laughs> Why would anyone do that? That's insane. That is a bad idea. And I sat down and, and played it for a good 20, 30 minutes. Um, so it was quite a long demo. And, we, and the, the, the booth was surrounded by people because it's just glorious. It's a glorious looking game. And oh, then when, you, you. when people sit down to play it, they go, this is way more than just pretty. This, there's some depth here. But yeah, the, the, the reaction's been really good, particularly after Eurogamer, but even the reviews and stuff now. And it, the flip side of that is why the hell exactly what you're saying why the hell are you making an isometric arcade adventure now and it's it's well I love them <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're still good you know yeah, I, I mean, I, Dexter was a game I liked on the Amstrad yeah 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 I remember I that little, yeah. I, was, I was a little older then and I could figure out what's going on you had a little helper dude that was cool 
Yeah. But I want to ask about, you've already t- touched on this, in fact, touched on a, lot, a couple of things I want to talk about. I want to go in deeper depth with them, as one does. Exploration is all part of Lumo's sort of modus operandi, from what I can gather. And a player is really rewarded when they explore things and find things. How do you believe you communicate this? Um, well, rewind a little bit. Yeah, exploration is definitely a thing. Um, where there was a long discussion between me and my girlfriend. She wanted a map and I didn't want a map. Oh, yes, um, there is a map in it, kind of. And, yeah, kind of. Um, so, the, so the compromise was that I did the map, but it doesn't show you where you are. So it's basically an analogue of what I did with Head Over Heels. And uh, I had to draw the map down on paper. And I was trying to, you know, little scribbles of where I was and where I'd been to and where things were. And through replay, I'd eventually learned the route through Head Over Heels. Um, and I, I wanted that feeling, you know. Um, but, you know, my girlfriend was right. It did need a map. So there are pieces of map that you now pick up. But it doesn't show you where you are. So you've still got to use your brain. Um, and that was always key to me because of that experience with Head Over Heels. You know, I literally, until your Sinclair put the map up a couple of months later, it's like I had to work it out, and that was where half of the fun was, and that's where a lot of the replay was. Um, but Head Over Heels is very short and very linear. It, you know, actually, there's not a lot you need to do to map it out. There's only the choices of where Head or Heels goes. And it was kind of the same for Monster Max as well. It is actually quite a linear game when you get at it. So I wanted Lumo to really be much more open than that. But I couldn't do it. The the first build that I had after the green light process was about 30 rooms from all of the zones just kind of stuck together. And it was really obvious that people hadn't played an isometric game before. Um, like oh. It was a real, you know, anyone under the age of 25 was just like, right, okay, uh, I play with the controls relative to the room, like the old school. Um, but anyone who's on a joypad, they have to have it relative to the camera or they're like, I can't play this. So I put that mode in and I gave it to a few people and they were just lost, you know, immediately lost. And it was like, right, okay. So I had to rein back massively, which is why the first hour of the game is essentially linear. You know, you have to backtrack on yourself twice and even that is enough to throw people off and they get horribly, horribly confused. So I had to really ease people into this, hang on, there's multiple ways that you can go in this game or there's going to be. So one of the things that I started... Yeah, Karen, that's interesting because I didn't have any of... But I wouldn't, would I? Because I'm too old. I remember, oh, this yeah. is how these games work. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. The, the so people you, you, you approach, yeah, you're like... Your people you approach, it wouldn't have been people like myself. Like, no, you already know. You already know. You're useless to me right now. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 basically, there, there was, there's a set of players that just immediately get it, and they're fine yeah. with it. And then there's another set of players that this is the most horrible thing in the world. What are you doing with this stupid camera angle? Why can't I move? Ah! And then after five minutes, they're like, oh, hang on. No, that's right. It's fine. Yeah. Okay, I've got it. Yeah, I can do it. But I had to, you know, I had to get people into this mode of like, look, this isn't like a modern game. There's no tutorial. There's no text. You have to work things out. Yeah. And when it comes to where there's going to be multiple paths, you're going to have to work that out as well. So I started adding the collectibles because it was obvious that there was nothing in there that was really marking the progress. And um, the cassettes were an obvious kind of thing to do. So I wanted people to realize that, you know, this is an old school game. You can kind of break the rules. You can do different things from a modern game. So I started putting these cassettes outside of the rooms just to encourage people to, like, explore. 
jump out of the room, see what you can do. So in the first section of the game, there's a shelf on the wall, and every room that has a shelf on the wall for the first 30 minutes, it means you can jump on that shelf and jump out of the room and collect a cassette. And I'm hoping, like, you know, there's about 25 of these. So after 25 times, people will start working out, oh, you're right, okay, I need to be looking out for different routes. I need to be checking different paths. It's not all about the door. There might be these secrets here and stuff like that. So I slowly start layering on, you know, bit by bit, that this is going to be a wider game that you're going to be required to do some more stuff on. And by the time you get to the kind of church, you've got a couple of paths you can take. You can kind of go the wrong way. You'll be revisiting rooms, sometimes on the floor, sometimes on the ceiling. You know, really just getting that, that you know, momentum across to the players. Like, try things. You know, there's going to be more here than what you can see. This is an old school game. Yeah, try and break the mechanics. Try and do something different. Don't just go from A to B. It's, you know, it'd be very easy to, get from the end of Lumo, you know, in a couple of hours without any of the secrets, but you'll have missed most of the game. You know, you'll have missed, yeah. like, all of the mini-games. You won't have seen a lot of the rooms. You won't have collected hardly any of the cassettes. Um, and there's a lot more to it than that. Um, and then the flip side is, like, I, I'm a big... I like, you know, poking around in the corners of worlds, but I hate it when I spent ten minutes getting somewhere and there isn't something there. Yeah. And it's like, what was the point of that? You know, why is this path here? You know, it's, it's like when you're banging around in a Zelda and there's not a heart container at the end of it. It's like, you what? Yeah. <laughs> but there are, I mean, the, the secret parts, I mean, what I found when I played the demo a year ago, I immediately discovered there was paths or things that were like, why is that crate there? You know the bit I'm talking about? It's yeah, really yeah, early yeah. on. Like, huh, what if I just dumped on it? Okay. And is there anything? Oh, there's something else there. And yeah. it's just, and then every room I went to, I would actually skirt along the wall yeah, just to see if is there something along here. I don't think there is. There's no indicator, but it's just to see anyway, you know. And uh, it's it's just that sense of discovery. And to be frank, you know, Super Mario had those too. We, we all know about those yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, very much so. Very yeah. much so. And, uh, and yeah. I've not been as obtuse as the Mario's. I mean, what I've done is they. There's a couple of instances where I break it, but they all follow a rule, and the rule is introduced somewhere in the game. And once you know the rule, you can find all of the other secrets that follow that rule. Yeah. Um, and it's the same for the coins. It's the same for the cassettes. The entrances to the mini games are a bit more obtuse. They're kind of like, well, I'm just going to stick these somewhere that I hope you never find. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. I wanted that that feeling of yeah, I'm exploring. I wanted that kind of feeling that I had when I was a kid, where it's like I have to really get to know this space to get the most out of it. And I wanted there to be that kind of rush of excitement of like, yeah, I beat the game. Yeah, I've done the thing that the designer didn't think I was going to do, or I've, you know, I found the, the the secret. It's cool, you know, and I wanted there to be that replay factor. And I, it, the difficulty of getting that hundred percent perfect run is what I was aiming for. So like I can do it, um, but I think it's going to take you know people a fair while to do it themselves and find everything and, and do it. So. Um, yeah, it was built like that pretty much straight away. As soon as I realised or stopped to think that, hang on, no one's seen these games for a while, I had to just, you know... Some of it's like teaching people to play an isometric, you know, arcade adventure from the beginning because they've just never seen one. Um, and their expectations are completely different because of that. Yeah, they're, they're, the closest you see, they'd probably see it and go, oh, it's like Diablo, only a bit bigger. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. And... <laughs> It's interesting. A lot. I've tried to avoid the reviews, but people keep sending them to me or tweeting them to me. And there's 
been a few. It's just like they, they just, you know, they're completely correct to have this opinion. That's what they feel, but they just haven't seen any of the original games. They have no idea. Like that, people complaining that there's not a top-down view and that you can't rotate the room. And it's like, well, okay, I could have done that, obviously. And yeah, maybe the game would have been better if I had done that. Arguably, it probably would have been easier. But then it's not an isometric arcade adventure. No. It's a different type of game. No, I mean, um, if you told me back in the day that you could rotate any level in eight and eight, like. Well, that would have been way easier because I would have seen that thing pop out from behind. But I didn't, so I died again, yeah. and that's okay, you know, because that's yeah. You, you like I said, you you've done a compromise a lot of the senses, and um, you you've taken aspects of modern gaming like the instant respawn and that sort of thing, and you know that's what I call the super meat boy of of, of uh, difficult video games. It's okay, you just reappear, and that's fine. No one cares. Yeah, it's yeah, fine. yeah. And uh, so, I it's it, it's whenever any any creative endeavor, the bravest thing one can do is actually release it to the wild. Because once it's once it is released, I know you know this already, but I like to vocalize it anyway. It's no longer yours. And oh no, yeah, yeah, it stopped being mine two weeks ago. And that's that's <laughs> fine. It's um, it, it's it's gratifying in a sense that so many people have understood what I'm doing. Um. I'd imagine that, you know, they're probably all a certain age group. Um, but I have seen, you know, a lot of, like, you know, kids under, you know, 13, 14 seem to love it. And loads of people have told me that their kids like it. Or I got a load of photos from PAX and it was mums playing it with, with their, you know, their kids. And I was like, that is brilliant. That's, you know, because I was trying to get that both ends because I played those games when I was little as well. And they are kind of magic in a sense. So, that was like probably the, the biggest thrill to to kind of see you know that that parents and kids enjoying it together. That was superb. I was at PAX East and uh, I do like PAX. It's a great show. And that seeing all those people um, crowd around that game, especially no offence to American listeners, but they didn't have those games. So to see you crowd around, to them crowd around like that, it's like wow. But but that's an isometric. How do you how are you glowing? How are you figuring this out? You know, yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's okay because they had the NES, which was brutal. Some of those games are just like here's here's fifty dollars, and now you cannot yeah. play this. They had, <laughs> Sol- they had Solstice and they had Equinox. I think those are the two touch points for the Americans. Solstice yeah. was brutal, from what yeah. I remember. Um, so the, yeah, there's a certain age group who would get that. Um, I think it's it, it's that kind of like you know fifteen to twenty. You know they're they're expecting there to be a tutorial and when they get stuck it's going to do something else and it's you know it's a much more brutal game than that in that sense because it, it doesn't hold your hand um, maybe that is a mistake I mean I was talking to Rob Fearon about this and it's like I should have done kind of like that Nintendo thing where you die like five times and then Luigi pops up and walks <laughs> you to the end of the level yeah. and then that you know probably would have smoothed out those kind of bumps Um but there was a load of concession. I purposefully made it, you know, one button because I wanted it to feel like you were playing on a Kempson joystick. And, you know, I, I purposefully limited the kind of camera movement because it, you know, yeah. it, there's a template that exists that loads of games have been made to. And I'm trying to, you know, pay homage to that template. To do something different would be to fundamentally change the game. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that I stuck to it because I think it's ended up... Um, you know, 
feeling as I wanted it to feel. And if I'd have made more concessions, it just would have ended up kind of being this halfway house between like, why is this a Zelda dungeon with little rooms? And, you know, it, it just, it, it, I, I'm not sure it would have stuck together quite as well if I'd, I've gone any further down that path. No. Um, I, one last question for you, uh, and then we'll have to end it. Oh no, all good things come to an end, but, uh, <laughs> it's something that, I've, I've become more and more tuned to, no pun intended, is about music um, and how music's coming even more and more important in games than ever before, thanks to the technology we have available to us. But I get the impression from listening to it that the sounds are definitely drawn or inspired by what was remembered of the 1980s. Can you tell us how this all the music development came about? Um, yeah, so originally when I started doing a prototype, I had Tim Follins' Ghouls and Ghosts music from the Amiga, which if you remember, that was that little twiddly medieval kind of uh, uh, thing that Tim Follin did so well. Right. And that was the kind of vibe that I was going for. And the game was actually a lot darker at that point as well. It was very, very kind of Scooby-Doo. You could barely see all the walls in the rooms. It was very shadow heavy and I was going for this kind of real spooky castle sort of vibe. Um, sort of half ghouls and ghosts because of the music and then half Scooby-Doo on the visuals. And, um, Phil, uh, Dope Demand, uh, was a guy I used to work with at Ruffian. He's working at Epic now. And um, he saw the green light video and was just like, oh, I've got to do the music for this. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, and he normally does like quite left field or sort of down tempo, a little bit of liquid drum and bass and stuff like that, but mainly kind of breaks oriented stuff. And I was like, actually, it'd be good to not do the stereotypical thing of like twiddly chip music. Um, and the expectation would be for a retro game, you know, make it with pixels, have chip music. And I was already like fairly adamant that I didn't want to do the pixel thing. And I was like, okay, let's just see what he comes up with. And he did some audio tests and they really sounded like kind of William Orbit-esque sort of uh, strange cargo-y type, you know, smoky beats sort of left field stuff. Right. And I chucked it in there and I was like, oh man, that's actually <laughs> really good. That works, that, yeah. Yeah, um, and it completely lifted up the whole game. And uh, there was a process over about three months where I just started brightening everything up, and it became much more kind of cartoony. And it, the tone kind of came out of this process of trying to fit the music into the visuals and actually have a kind of atmosphere for each zone. But me and Phil spent a long time trying. We were going to have dynamic music, so as you came in to a room and have bad guys who kind of do that Zelda thing and it would get and then she kind of left into a room that was more calm it was sort of you know get twiddly and, and just you know chill out a little bit but the problem we had was where I'd made Lumo he moves like three times as fast as the old 8-bit games where he's so fast moving around the world you could be in and out of a room before the music had time to actually change um, and we could never really satisfy it because if there was lag you'd be four rooms past the room with the monster in and like the music's playing monster stuff and then we were just like we're, we're not going to be able to make this work <laughs> um, so then we tried playing around with like okay so maybe we can just bring the bass or the beat in um, and use that to kind of set the tone. And I messed around with that for about a week, and I couldn't get that to work either. And I was like, okay, I don't really know what to do. And I was like, Phil, just do me like a 10-minute, like completely down-tempo version that loops. Yeah, just give me a big, like really chill it out, strip everything out. 
Um, so if you listen to like the official soundtrack, you've, you've, I think there's both versions in there. You kind of get the original version that he did, and then the ambient version, which was in the game. And they are quite different. They're, you know, one's like a song, and one's like this big, long ambient kind of bed. And we chucked that into the first zone, and it was like, hang on, this is it. We found it. This is perfect. And then it was just about trying to get. Um, it to sort of sit with the ambience. There's, there's like an ambient track in the background of each zone. Some of it's just like little voices in the church whispering away in the mine. There's people, you know, banging on an anvil and there's machines. And in the in the basement, there's just like creaking wood and drips and stuff. And having that sit with the music and then all of that being sort of quiet enough that you can actually hear the sound effects in the game. So there was a little process to and fro. Phil would do a version. I'd sort of edit it a little bit in Ableton and then sort of say, okay, I need you to kind of do this or, or do that. And then um, really it was more about like, okay, which track is going to fit with which zone? Um, so I'd play around and audition the tracks in and play the game for you know a couple of days with one in the background and go, well, okay, that doesn't really fit that one. Or maybe I need something you know for the church that's a little bit more, um, I don't know, cavernous or spooky or something. And a little bit of backwards and forwards about that. Um, but it, it ended up being all sorted out really in the space of like a, the, the summer. Um, Phil just, you know, do quick remixes here and there and then we got to where it was and then he went off and did like the final masters for him and I kind of dropped them in. And I think it really, it's kind of like putting the lid on the whole experience. The, the gameplay was really far along at that point and was feeling good. The, the look and the, f- the look of the zones had basically been settled on. Um, and then once the music kind of went in there, that that was really where it all came together. Because it's the fact that it's not that kind of music that you'd expect for this type of game pleases me a lot. You can listen to the soundtrack on its own; you wouldn't think it was from a you know remake of an '80s game. Um, and I think it gives quite a lot of character to to each zone. Really, um, it's I, you know hats off to to Phil he's done an absolutely superb job on it I'm really really happy with it and it seems a lot of people quite like it you know the the, the OST's up and people are buying it which is great yeah it's I just wanted to ask you about that because I don't think people are talking about it enough and what really struck me I did not know this of course I didn't know because it wasn't there but to, you to tell me that the music the first track you got then required you well not required you but inspired you to turn around and go hmm maybe I just alter the graphics to bring it up a bit to reflect the sound I just well, thought, yeah, wow, it's, it, that's, it's really incredible well no because the music's I mean the music's a, the personality in a sense it's, right. it's, it's giving you there's, there's no point having um, like a Silent Hill looking game where you're playing folk music <laughs> you know it, it's the two are kind of incongruous so yeah, sometimes um, that works though I've seen that happen but yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, don't get me wrong, you know, for the most part, you're not going to do that. So no. I was, I guess I was chasing a kind of ghouls and ghosts feel initially. And I mean, if you go really early days on the Tumblr, I mean, it was dark. You you could really only see, it's almost like Thief. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It was, <laughs> it was really dark. Um, Thief, not the new one. Oh, God. Yeah, no, the, in the darkness. Um, <laughs> and... It did need brightening up a little bit, um, but the music kind of it, it helped me find the character because the the music's quite playful and quite jovial, and um, really Lumo did have to go that way, um, and uh, you know the the visuals did actually you know lend themselves to that anyway. There's this quite 
chunky sort of effect that I was going for. You know, everything looks quite solid and there's a you know fair bit of contrast that's baked into the textures and stuff. So by the time I lit it and then uh, did the post process and the color grading, once once the color grading was really you know um, quite yellow and saturated, um, everything kind of sat you know really well at that point. And you could enter the zone and you could know where you were and it had you know a vibe. And the vibe's really being driven by the music. So the visuals do have to, to kind of match what's going on there. At least I think that. Yeah. yeah. Well, Gareth, it's been fantastic having you on. Lumo is out now on Windows, PC, Mac, Linux, and PS4. Yeah, and PS4. Uh, Xbox One and Vita are going to be out uh, later this month. Um, Vita. Yeah. Wow, this game will shine on that machine. Uh, I've fingers crossed. Uh, the guys have just had water. Um, have right. been doing the console versions. They've done a bang up job on uh, all the versions so far. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to playing that one as well. Should it's, be good. I do like that machine. Sorry, but you know, it's got so many good things about it. The screen especially, but you know, Oli yeah, Oli's, yeah, yeah, it's one of my favourites on there. Cause it's, yeah, yeah, totally. I'm a, I'm a fan. That's why we're supporting it. So yeah, um, yeah I think uh, Lumo is going to be a good game to have in your pocket. It's you know you get frustrated, put it down, pick it up. It's I think it'll fit fit right into that. Yeah. Um. So yeah, looking forward to the release of those. And thanks for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Best of luck with it and your future yeah. endeavours. Yeah. Cheers, man. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review, and you can also don't forget listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com, and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory, and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer you listen to this show and want your game featured on it please do email me at chris at spong.com also don't forget to check out the computer game show which is the stablemate podcast should we say of spong.com bye